0: From WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Karen Henderson. On the show today, we learn what U.S. Women's Olympic basketball history has to do with Louisiana and the South. Our managing producer, Alana Schreiber, spoke with Andrew Marinus about his new book, Inaugural Ballers, the true story of the first U.S. Women's Olympic basketball team to learn more. But first... Earlier this month marked 181 years since one of the most successful uprisings in American history. The Creole Rebellion of 1841 saw a mutiny on a slaving brig headed from Virginia to New Orleans and eventually led to the emancipation of more than 100 formerly enslaved individuals. Here to tell us more about this important moment in history is History Department Research Fellow at the University of Texas at Austin, Clifton Sorrell III, Clifton previously wrote about the 1841 Creole Rebellion for History.com, and he joins me now. Clifton, thanks for being here.
1: Yeah, thank you for this opportunity and talk about this really important moment. I'm excited to share more about the revolt and answer the questions that y'all have about it.
0: All right, well, it's early November, 1841. A brig called the Creole is carrying enslaved people on its way from Virginia to New Orleans when there's a mutiny on board. How does this revolt happen and who are some of the key players?
1: Yeah, no, this revolt is a very interesting one in that some of the leaders, uh, Madison Washington, um, Elijah Morris, Ruffin, uh, Ben Blackwell, we know the names of these enslaved men who organized this revolt madison washington right he's an enslaved man who uh, was formerly enslaved in the south uh he uses the underground railroad to escape to canada um and there he eventually uh, gets up enough resources, support to go back and save his wife. Right. So this is an enslaved person who has extensive um, experience in resisting, moving about, um, achieving freedom by his own hands. So he's going to be a really big player in the unfolding of this revolt aboard the Creole. Um, The others are specialists. Uh, we have a blacksmith. Um, we have a uh i believe a cartographer who used to his enslaver um was into making maps and things like that so these these different leaders are going to draw on their different experiences um you mentioned earlier right it kicks off on november 7th um the creole brig itself is part of a larger network um what is referred to as the domestic american slave trade We have ships moving from upper northeast United States down, dispersing enslaved people for sale um, in New Orleans, in Galveston, Texas, um, Mobile, Alabama. So it's part of this larger domestic slave trade network that um, really takes off after the abolition of the international transatlantic slave trade in 1808. I want to know, right. Washington, he flees to Canada. Um, years before he's brought on the Creole because he knows, right, slavery is um, also abolished in these British territories. Canada, Bahamas at the time is a British colony. So we also have extensive, we have these enslaved people who are very knowledgeable about these different geographies beyond the U.S. Um, The night of November 7th, those four men that I named are going to get together with another 19 or so um, individuals, all of them are enslaved men, and they are going to seize the ship um, and force the crew to reroute it when it's about, uh, I believe, about 130 miles right off the coast of the Abacaos Bahamas, and they're going to reroute it to Nassau, where they will at- attempt to uh, free themselves in uh, British territory where slavery had been abolished. This revolt happens in 1841. Slavery is abolished in all of the British Empire around 1835, between 1835 and 1838. Um, And the reason why we have that big gray area is we have a it's a gradual process. So enslaved people know this. And before we have the, um, I guess I'm jumping ahead, but before we have this revolt aboard the Creole, we also have other slaving brigs of enslaved people who are revolting um, and rerouting ships, seizing ships, seizing their ships to the Bahamas or to other British territories in the Caribbean. We have enslaved people in southern Florida who are taking it upon themselves aboard canoes and small vessels, handcrafted vessels to flee to British territories. So at the same time that you have enslaved people fleeing to Canada in the north, you have a lot of enslaved people along the southern coasts who are fleeing to the Caribbean.
0: In uh, the Bahamas at this point, slavery has been abolished. The British Slave Abolition Act has has already happened. And so Mm -hmm. it's been a couple of years. So there are a lot of people that are here in Nassau that were formerly enslaved that are now free. How did the locals rally around these mutineers? Kind of give us a picture of what happens here.
1: Yeah, no, this is, I think, one of the more fascinating aspects of this Creole revolt, right? When it reaches Nassau, we have this huge uproar um, of many, many um, formerly enslaved people, now freemen, out rallying for For the crew to be released. The people in the Bahamas are very aware about the domestic slave trade um, in the United States and its implications on the Bahamas. People freed themselves because of the abolition of slavery and other formerly enslaved people from the U.S. who are there. So when the brig arrives, a lot of them immediately, right, these they are forging kinship connections with these other enslaved people, right? Um, and so when we think about that context, I think that's really important to think about, right, that relationship there, the the kind of uh, feelings that are emerging amongst uh, the people in uh, Sao at that moment in time.
0: We're we are speaking with History Department Research Fellow at the University of Texas at Austin, Clifton Sorel III, about the Creole Rebellion of, of 1841, This is a revolt that was transnational. It highlighted different countries' views of slavery at the time. The U.S. claimed that the revolutionaries were still property. What was the U.K.'s argument for letting them go free? And did this heighten any of the tension between the the nations?
1: This, at this moment in time, was a really tumultuous period between the U.S. And, and Great Britain, because at that same time in the North and Canada, there was conflict along the Canadian-Northern U.S. border between different people living in that region, We're trying to figure out where X exactly is that border. Right? We don't have physical walls or any physical markers um, designating, all right, this is British Canada, this is... The U.S. So the Creole happens during this really tumultuous period, and when English officials learn this proposal to have these enslaved people extradited back to the U.S. Um, because they are enslaved property it became this issue of well, slavery's abolish are we recognizing them as enslaved people the extradition the charge was that the property rebelled against their master their enslavers and so that became the question of do british authorities have the right to seize enslaved people if they no longer recognize slavery Um, and one of the arguments that emerged um, in freeing the enslaved people was that um, because of the slave abolition act which was passed in 1833 But again, it was a very gradual process, not till much later, 1838, that we actually get the freedom of these people. Um, They no longer legally recognized or had the power to hold enslaved people against their will, Without criminal charges, um, and so they weren't able to recognize the slave revolt that happened aboard the brig as a criminal charge that happened within the jurisdiction of the British Empire, because the career of the revolt happened at sea and not in the Bahamas, so the there wasn't any basis to hold those those these now for free people against their will.
0: It was just a few years earlier, in 1808, the famed Amistad Rebellion. Fifty-three captives were carried illegally across the Middle Passage in violation of the transatlantic slave ban. This led to the Supreme Court case, which allowed the captives to return to Africa. How was the revolt on the Creole, perhaps inspired by the Amistad, and what made these revolts similar and also different?
1: There's a direct uh, connection here between the Amistad um, and the Korea Revolt. Both cases are going to involve these larger transnational discussions about jurisdiction. In the Amistad, we have the Spanish Empire and their diplomats who wanted those, the rebels, who led the Amistad Revolt to be tried back in Spain and in the U.S. They no longer recognize the transatlantic slave trade. And so when they discover that this vessel was trading enslaved people across the Atlantic, you know, they could not recognize those captives as enslaved people. Now, obviously, one of the contradictions that arises here is that slavery is still being practiced at the same time as the Amistad. So a lot of this is has to do with right just recognizing jurisdiction, right? The United States felt that jurisdiction was transgressed. And we see that in the Creole revolt as well. Um, One of the connections as well is when Madison Washington makes it to Canada, um, before he returns back to try to free his wife, he meets an abolitionist by the name of Robert Purvis, or Purvey, um, who hosts him, and they travel to Philadelphia. There, they have they have many conversations. They talk, and it's that there where Madison learns about the Amistad revolt. Purvey, um, he describes the event. He gives him a picture. There's a painted picture of the Amistad revolt, and he keeps that himself. One of those the big differences I would say is definitely that dimension. You know, Clifton,
0: um, a, a lot of people are hearing this for the first time. This this might be the first time they've even heard of the Creole Rebellion. Why do you think? Uh, this story isn't quite so well known. And and what do you think are some of the larger lessons we can learn from it?
1: A lot of these histories are framed in the context of kind of framing a larger U.S. history um, and, you know, In the case of the Creole, the U.S. is not on the side of liberating these enslaved people. So that's one thing I want to point out is, right, we've heard about the Amistad because the U.S. is posed as these liberators, right? They're freeing these enslaved people from the Spanish who have illegally seized um, these enslaved people. And in the case of the Creole, the U.S. is defending enslavers um, who want to seize their property who've been seized by the British? So in that sense, doesn't paint the U.S. in a really positive light. So it's probably why we probably have never heard of this story in our in your general textbooks um, or in hist- in your classrooms.
0: And Clifton, why is it so important that this story and others like it are told?
1: Well, I think it's important to think about this not in terms of our national story, but more so what it says about these 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 black men and women who risked their lives and were freedom it's a larger story of freedom practice when we think about people using underground road to get to Canada right it adds another frontier of where enslaved people in the US were looking towards right the Caribbean, the Caribbean became a vital space in New Orleans, we have people in New Orleans, not just aboard the slaving ship, but we're fleeing uh, fleeing New Orleans to the Caribbean, to Mexico, right? trying to find other ways, navigations, leaving the United States, these diasporic communities that are looking elsewhere um, for a means of achieving freedom. So one of the things why I think it's really important because it expands the way we learn about where that enslaved people, formerly enslaved people, are pursuing freedom beyond the boundaries of the U.S., right? It involves a much larger hemispheric story of the ways Black people are looking to achieve freedom. So what I'm essentially trying to say is studying this revolt, studying the Korea revolt, expands the way that we learn about or we teach Black history. Black history is not just a U.S. history, um, right? We have Black folks who are moving between different spaces. It's much more global. And so the Korea revolt kind of brings that to light.
0: History Department Research Fellow at the University of Texas at Austin, Clifton Sorrell III. You can read his article that he co-authored about the 1841 Creole Rebellion on History.com. Clifton, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much.
0: From WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Kieran Henderson. A League of Their Own meets Miracle in the inspirational true story of the first U.S. women's Olympic basketball team and their unlikely rise. Made of a ragtag group of basketball players from largely unknown schools, this group of athletes put women's basketball on the map in 1976, two decades before women's soccer became an Olympic sport and the formation of the WNBA. Author Andrew Marinus wrote about this team in his new book, Inaugural Ballers, the true story of the first U.S. women's Olympic basketball team. He joined managing producer Alana Schreiber for more on this story and the fascinating Louisiana connections. In
2: 1976, the Montreal Olympic Games was the first to host a women's basketball competition. So how did that come to be? Why women's basketball and what countries brought
3: teams? Sure. So men's basketball had been introduced at the Olympics in 1936, uh, you know, in Nazi Germany. And the inventor of the game, James Naismith, was there as an older man, you know, to see his invention played in the Olympics. But it took 40 more years uh, for women's basketball uh, to be added to the Olympics, not because women weren't playing basketball during that time. One of the things I write about in the book is that women had been playing basketball since uh, a week after the game was invented. Naismith had encouraged some local school teachers to come play uh, at the gym. At Springfield College, um, there were only six teams uh, in Montreal playing in that first uh, women's basketball tournament, and the Americans almost weren't among them. You know, now we think of the U.S. Uh, women's Olympic basketball team as the biggest power in the world, with seven straight gold medals and hardly ever losing a game along the way to those gold medals. But the U.S. had finished in eighth place in the in the world championships the year before and didn't qualify the Olympics until the last-minute qualifying tournament in Hamilton, Ontario, just two weeks uh, before the Olympics started. And so the fact that the American women went on to win a silver medal in the 76 games, finishing behind the dominant Soviet Union, was considered a major upset.
2: Tell me a little bit more about the makeup of this team. Who were some of the star players? What did they bring to the court?
3: If you've heard of any of the players on the team today, the ones that most people have heard of are figures like uh, Nancy Lieberman, who went on to become one of the greatest players in the history of the game. She was just in high school Uh, Ann Myers from UCLA, uh, who was the first woman to get a four-year basketball scholarship during this era, you know, right after the passage of title IX, as it's starting to be implemented. Uh, Pat head who went on to become Pat head summit uh, was the co-captain of the team goes on to become, you know, the all-time winningest coach in women's basketball history. And then Lucy Harris uh, from Delta state, Uh, in Mississippi, who has a a Louisiana connection later drafted by the New Orleans Jazz as the first woman drafted by an NBA team. These were really the the star players of that team in 1976.
2: Absolutely. Well, let's talk a little bit more about Lucy or Louisa Harris. Born in Minter City, Mississippi to sharecroppers, the 10th of 11 children, She played for Delta State, and she was the only African-American woman on the team at that time. So tell me a little bit about her and her meteoric rise and what she means to the community of Southern women basketball players.
3: Absolutely. I mean, it's just a remarkable story. Um, Born in Mitchell City, as you mentioned, it's the Mississippi Delta. She's from the same county uh, where Emmett Till uh, was murdered, she was in the same part of the state where Fannie Lou Hamer, you know, was fighting for civil rights, the same part of the state where Robert F. Kennedy came in 19, early 1960s to look at the poverty in the, in the Mississippi Delta. Um, her high school offered girls basketball, but Lucy Harris was picked on. And this is another example of the uh, disparities and uh, how women athletes versus men athletes are treated. You know, a male athlete who's tall and strong is going to be looked up to. Uh, Lucy Harris was uh, was uh, bullied, and her classmates would say, long and tall, that's all, you know, uh, as if it was a negative that she had this height. Um, she wanted to go to college at HBCU at Alcorn State, uh, which didn't offer women's basketball, and so she thought her career would be over uh, after high school. But Delta State reinstituted uh, their women's basketball program, which had been disbanded like so many colleges, in the 1930s when there was a backlash against women's sports they finally bring it back at the same time that lucy harris is about to enroll in college and so as you said she becomes the only black player at delta state and leads that team to three national championships and a national player of the year Uh, she becomes the high scorer on the u.s olympic team in 1976 and is the first woman ever to score a basket in olympic basketball competition something she said that no one could ever take away from her
2: Wow. Well, of course, we need to talk about Sue Gunter. She was the head basketball coach at LSU for the Lady Tigers and assistant coach of the 1976 Olympic basketball team. So tell me a little bit about her, what she contributed to basketball just across the board.
3: Yeah, I mean, Sue Gunter, one of the legendary figures uh, in the history of the game, a great two-decade-plus career uh, at LSU. I know she's so highly uh, respected there. She actually began her career here closer to where I am. I'm in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, she played for the National Business College team, which was a, a power in AAU basketball back in the 1950s and 60s. Um, but she was the assistant coach on the team. And I sort of imagine her as sort of the good cop to the, the bad cop that was the head coach, uh, Billy Moore. And Billy told me that herself when I interviewed her for the book. She said that, you know, she would be the one that would... They would tear the players down and, and Sue Gunner would come back behind and pick everything up. Um, and from talking to Sue's contemporaries and her former players, just someone that everyone um, admired for her ability to relate to just about any type of person. You know, I was told she was the type that could go sit in a in like a um, dive bar, you know, and drink some beer and get along with everyone there. Or she could go to a really fancy banquet and be drinking wine and talking about world politics. You know, she could relate to any type of person. And that's what made her a great coach, You know her ability to get to know her players, understand what made them tick, what made them successful.
2: We are speaking with Andrew Marinus, author of Inaugural Ballers, the true story of the first US women's Olympic basketball team. Well, walk me through the 1976 games. The US came away with a silver medal. What happened and what did it mean?
3: Yeah. And so um, one thing I should say is that the Soviets won the gold medal we won the silver. But what was different about those Olympics, now you would play a gold medal game and the loser would sort of settle for the silver medal, right? So back then, we won the silver by beating Czechoslovakia. It was just a round-robin tournament. And they said, whoever has the best record after this tournament wins the gold. Whoever has the second best record after the tournament wins the silver. And so it wasn't a situation where we lost a game And had to settle for the silver. We went into this last game against the Czechs, knowing that if we won the game, we'd win that medal. And so it was a feeling of elation. And there's pictures of the players celebrating, which would never happen when you, quote unquote, win a silver medal. Now, we had played the Soviets earlier in the tournament, and they had a center who was seven foot two named Ljana Semenova. Really, um, there was no chance to beat the Soviets that year, and so uh, winning silver was considered the best any other country could do. And again, it wasn't expected that the Americans would be the ones to do that after finishing in, in eighth place the year before. However, the American players understood the historic nature of what they were doing. You know, They understood the impact that Title IX could have. Then they understood that this was the first and only time that women's basketball would be making its debut at the Olympics and that a lot of people would be watching, especially a lot of little girls would be watching. She told her team before that silver medal game that if they won, it would change women's sports and women's basketball in this country for the next 25 years. And she was right about that.
2: And let's remember, this is the 70s. So this is during the second wave of feminism. We have this kind of breakup of the traditional suburban life. There's Roe v. Wade. There's Title IX. There's the momentum behind the Equal Rights Amendment. So how do you think that that backdrop contributed to this team and the growth of women's basketball?
3: Yeah, it's something that I loved writing about in the book. In all of my books, I try not to just focus on the athletic side, you know, it's not just about the scores or the statistics or you know how good someone's post move was, you know, but about the surrounding context. And as you said, this is the 1970s, and so the whole backdrop of the fight for ERA, Roe v. Wade, uh, Title IX, uh, women's liberation—that's uh, all a piece of this book. And it's important to remember that the players on this team grew up in an era where they were told as girls or women, that they shouldn't have muscles, that they shouldn't sweat, that they shouldn't be competitive. And so um, I feel like these women uh, coming along in 76, during this time when Title IX is just starting to be implemented, had a major impact on women's rights in this country. If you think of the athletic fields as one of the venues where fight for equal uh, uh, rights played out.
2: Andrew Marinus is the author of Inaugural Ballers, the true story of the first U.S. women's Olympic basketball team. Thanks so much for being here.
3: Oh, thank you. I really enjoyed this conversation.
0: From WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, you've been listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Karen Henderson. Thanks to our guests, History Department Research Fellow at the University of Texas at Austin, Clifton Sorrell III, and author Andrew Marinus. Our managing producer is Alana Schreiber, our digital editor, Caitlin Omholtz. Our engineers are Garrett Pittman, Aubrey Procell, and Thomas Walsh. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at noon and 7.30 p.m. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience with additional support from the Historic New Orleans Collection.